case of the Rolex murder from A Hand in the Water by Bill Schiller. Except for his Rolex watch, the man's identity might have died with him. Reading like an Agatha Christie thriller, a sensational true story of murder, money, sex and multiple identities. To those who worked the sometimes treacherous seas along that part of the English coast, it was a tragically familiar discovery, the body of a drowning victim. There was very little to go by in determining the dead man's identity. No wallet, no papers were found on his body. And there was little else of note, except for a tattoo on one hand and a watch, which had stopped working days before. For the local police, the challenge was trying to work out who this poor soul was. Stymied at every attempt, investigators hit on the idea that the drowned man's watch might provide clues. It did. And their routine quest was transformed into a search through a complex web of swindles, double and triple identities, and a cold-blooded killer. Early Sunday morning, July 28, 1996, fisherman John Coppick and his son Craig left their home port in Brixham, Devon, on England's south coast, aboard the trawler Malkerry. Once they were at sea, they let a long trawling net out behind them. After about two hours, the men hauled up the net. Finding few fish, they released it again. Another check a few hours later showed that things hadn't improved. Growing testy at their bad luck, father and son decided to let out the net a third time and turned for home. Around 3pm, they were less than 10 kilometres from shore. Coppick called to his son, Let's haul them in, mate! As the net emerged from the water, Coppick could see that their luck had changed. It was loaded with fish, and there seemed to be an especially large one trapped inside. Probably a porpoise, the father thought. As the net drew closer, however, Coppick saw something that sent a chill through him. A human face was staring at him, its mouth slightly ajar. The Coppicks heaved the net on board and opened the end of it, the body and the mass of fish went slithering across the deck. Coppick radioed the Coast Guard to tell them what he'd found. As the Malkerry sailed into port, Coppick could see a police car at the dock. Among the officers waiting was Detective Constable Ian Clenahan, a young detective who had just been posted to the region. Clenahan bent over to have a look at the body. The dead man was fully dressed. The detective could see there was a large gash on the back of the corpse's head. On his right wrist was a stainless steel Rolex Oyster watch. The next afternoon, the pathologist and coroner's officer Robin Little began to undress the corpse. Each item was put in a separate plastic bag. The brown leather shoes, the green corduroy pants, the watch showing the time and date, 11.35 July 22. They noted that the watch was automatic and self-winding. There was not a single piece of identification on the body, but there was one possible identifying mark, a tattoo on the back of the man's right hand. It appeared to be five stars joined together. The following day, a second, more detailed autopsy was done. Every major organ was removed, weighed, cut open and examined. All injuries were duly noted. A crack on the back of the skull, a well-defined bruise on the left hip, some minor lacerations on the chest and back that could have been caused by the body being dragged along the sea floor. None of these injuries, however, could have killed the man, the senior pathologist concluded. The blow to the head could have been sustained accidentally, perhaps as the deceased fell into the water. 
but the fact that the lungs were laden with water and that the man's body had been found at sea led the pathologist to make his pronouncement, death by drowning. But that still left the nagging question, who was he? Days went by, yet the police were no closer to identifying the dead man. Then, on July 31, a friend suggested to Robin Little that since every Rolex comes with a serial number, perhaps the company might help. Little dialed Rolex's UK office, about 360 kilometres away in Bexley, Kent, and explained the situation to an employee, Carol Highland. His friend's information was indeed correct, Highland confirmed. Since 1905, each Rolex made has had a serial number inscribed on its casing. Thus, a record of every repair and servicing to a watch could be obtained through Rolex's central registry as part of the company's quality control. Little slipped the watch out of its plastic bag and flipped it over. He could see no number. The watch, he said, must be a fake. The number is on the shoulder of the casing, just where the bracelet joins the case, Highland explained. You can't see it without taking the pins out and removing the bracelet. With a small needle, Little nudged one and then the other pin out and carefully removed the bracelet. There, inscribed on the side of the watch, was a number, 1544402. For its full-service history, the company would need to open up the watch itself. Little obtained permission and the watch was sent to Bexley. Days later, Carol Highland called Clenahan with more information. According to Rolex Records, the watch had been serviced twice in the 1980s both times by an authorised dealer in Harrogate in North Yorkshire. Following a call to the dealer, Clenahan asked the local police to confirm a name, Ronald Joseph Platt, born March 22, 1945. National and personal records allowed them to track the victim from Harrogate to 100 Beardsley Drive in Chelmsford, Essex, some 400 kilometres east of where the body was found. Armed with this information, Clenahan called the Chelmsford police to ask them to find out what they could about the victim. There, Sergeant Peter Redman came up with one useful piece of information. Platt's landlord still had the name and mobile number of a reference Platt had provided when he'd moved in six months earlier. It was a Mr David Davis. Redman gave the phone number to Clenahan. When the detective dialed it, a man answered. Is that David Davis? Yes, it is. David Davis, who acted as a reference for a Ronald Platt, who leased a flat in Chelmsford? Yes, who is this? Constable Ian Clenahan of the Devon and Cornwall Police, Mr Davis. There's been an accident at sea and a body has been found. We believe it may be your friend, Mr Platt. Oh my God, are they absolutely certain? Apparently, Clenahan said, but I don't think we should go into this on the phone. Could you go to the local station in Chelmsford and tell us a little bit about Mr Platt? Of course. On August 22, a 1.8 metre tall, dapper man with a dark beard walked into the Chelmsford station. He had an oval face, a strong chin and shining brown eyes and carried himself with confidence and poise. He identified himself as David Davis. Sergeant Redman, a friendly, round-faced, plainclothes detective with closely cropped hair, welcomed his visitor. You knew Ronald Joseph Platt? Redman asked. Yes, I did, Davis said thoughtfully stroking his beard. I've known him for a couple of years. He's a friend. Kindred spirit, really. But I understood he'd left for France to set up a business there. When did you last see him? June, I believe. Did he leave an address? No, but I was anticipating hearing from him. Davis added that before Platt left, he had his mail redirected to Davis's address, 
Little London Farm. While Davis was still there, Redmond called Clenahan and passed the phone to Davis so the two men could talk directly. Davis told the detective constable that Platt had two brothers. He was not sure where they lived, but he did know that the dead man's mother was also living in High Wycombe. Also, Platt had done a stint in the army. All interesting material, Clenahan thought. They were lucky to have found this fellow Davis. With a little more luck, he might be able to close the file on this case. He especially wanted to wrap it up now that a new detective chief inspector for Devon and Cornwall, Phil Sincock, had arrived. Sincock had come to his post with impeccable credentials. He first came to national attention in 1990 when he took on a murder case that had been unsolved for 10 years and conclusively pinned it on a criminal already doing time for kidnapping. It was exceptional detective work, especially for someone without a university degree. As a young man, Sincock quit school when his father fell on hard times and got a job in a local tin mine. Later, when his father became a civilian worker for the police, Phil followed, becoming a uniformed constable at the age of 19 and later a detective. He was quickly earning a reputation as a fine detective, and he was known to be a hard taskmaster. So far, it appeared as though his detective skills were hardly needed for the Platt case. It was being treated as an accident, and in part thanks to Davis's information, it was coming along well. Army dental records had confirmed Platt's identity. Then, the police managed to track down one of Platt's brothers, Brian. The dead man was definitely Ronald, the brother said. He explained that the tattoo on the right hand was not a five-pointed star, but a maple leaf. His brother had been raised in Canada and loved that country. Brian gave them more useful information. Ron had had a girlfriend, Elaine Boys. They had been together off and on for more than 12 years, but three years earlier, in 1993, they had broken up. By this point, the investigation had extended into October. It had been two and a half months since the corpse was found. At long last, it seemed it was nearly time to lay Platt's body and the file to rest. Just one question remained. How did he end up at the bottom of the sea? Since David Davis seemed to have been the dead man's only friend, Clenahan wanted to talk to him one more time. The detective had trouble reaching Davis on his mobile, so he called Sergeant Redman, his colleague in Chelmsford, for another favour. Could he go out to Davis's house and ask him to call the Devon and Cornwall Police Department? On October 14, Redman, dressed in civilian clothes, drove to Little London Lane. There he found four houses. Two had signs on their gates, but neither one said Little London Farm, the name of Davis's house. That left the other two. The odds are 50-50, thought Redman. He went to one of the houses and knocked, and an older gentleman answered the door. Sorry to bother you, sir, but is this Little London Farm? This is Little London House, the man said. That, he said, stepping out onto the porch and pointing next door, is Little London Farm. Thank you very much, Redmond said, and began to walk away. Then it struck him that he'd better make sure. He turned around. That is where Mr David Davis lives, isn't it? Dear boy, the elderly man replied, you're mistaken again. There's no Mr Davis who lives there. That is where Ronald Platt lives. Redmond was stunned. Ronald Platt? Yes, and his wife, Noelle, and their two children. May I ask what this Mr Platt looks like? I may have the wrong address. Oh, he's about 50. An American chap. Outgoing, friendly, dark hair, beard. A retired banker from New York. 
he spends a lot of his time on his boat down in Devon. It was a precise description of Davis, Redmond realised. He steadied himself, then said, Oh, I must have the wrong man. Redmond thanked the gentleman and hurried to his car. He had to get back to the station and make an urgent call. When Clenahan answered, Redmond said, Something's up. Good God, said Clenahan when he heard the sergeant's report. Hanging up, he went straight to Sincock's office. That Davis fellow who's helped us out with the Platt case, Clenahan began. The man who said he was the dead man's friend. He's been living under Platt's name. And he added one more damning detail. Davis had a boat down in Devon somewhere. Suddenly, the Platt case was no longer a low priority. The next day, DSI Sincock convened a meeting with Clenahan and other detectives. He ordered them to put Little London Farm and its residents under a microscope, get hold of documents such as local government records, banking records and phone bills. Clenahan tracked down Platt's former girlfriend Elaine Boys in Harrogate and made an appointment to meet with her in late October. Wearing glasses and dressed conservatively, she seemed genial and trusting. With him, Clenahan carried a photograph of the back of the dead man's hand with the maple leaf tattoo. Yes, a shaken voice confirmed after viewing the photo. It was Ron. The police had notified a David Davis too, Clenahan told her. How long has he known, she asked. A couple of months now. The woman froze. She said she had spoken to Davis only about a week before and had asked him about Platt. All he said was that he had seen him off to France. Still stunned by the news, Boys went on to tell Clenahan all about her life with Ron Platt and how she and he came to befriend David Davis. It began in the summer of 1990. She was a 31-year-old receptionist at Henry Spencer and Sons Fine Art Auctioneers in Harrogate, a posh Victorian spa town in North Yorkshire, 290 kilometres north of London. One day a man walked in and asked to see some paintings. Just then the phone rang. Boys answered it, fielded other calls and handled queries from colleagues, every now and then giving a nodding smile to the patiently waiting visitor. At last, Boys said, how can I help you? I've been watching you, the man replied. You've got people traipsing through here, the phone's ringing, and you treat everyone so well. I could use someone like you. I beg your pardon? I'm planning on starting up a little fine arts and antiques company myself. I'm over here quite a bit now, and I'll be moving permanently from America soon. I'd pay you well. You could travel. We could even take some courses together down at Sotheby's in London. But you must know a lot already working here. Not as much as I'd like, Boys said, still flustered. I could teach you all about business. We could work together. I'm sure of it. You don't even know me. David Davis, he said, extending his hand, bowing slightly and smiling as he did so. Elaine Boys, she replied, shaking hands. But this is ridiculous. I can't even think about changing jobs, Mr Davis. I've promised my boyfriend we'll move to Canada. He grew up there and all he ever talks about is going back. It's his dream. Well, you can't blame a man for chasing a dream, can you? Davis encouraged her, almost fatherly now. Was he born there, he asked. No, no, Ron's father was a teacher in Canada. They went over from Liverpool when Ron was about ten. He came back in 63 and later joined the army. He learned about electronics there. We're planning on heading over as soon as we have the money. Elaine, said Davis, dropping his voice to a confidential hush. I could offer you enough money so within a year's time you could both fly off. While Boys was not persuaded to take him up on his offer that day, 
she agreed to think about it. When Davis saw Boys again the following February, he met her boyfriend, Ron Platt. By then, Boys had decided to accept Davis's offer. In April, Elaine Boys became special assistant and the secretary of Cavendish Corp, Davis's new art and antiques venture. As such, she was to act solely as her boss's legal representative, with the power to open bank accounts and deposit and withdraw money for him. Around that time, Davis confided in her about the tragedy of his first marriage and how his ex-wife, back home in the United States, was pursuing him for alimony. His response was to move to London. One daughter, Noelle, had chosen to come with him. For that reason it was vital, he told boys, that his name never appear on documents of any kind. Security and secrecy were crucial. Davis also asked Platt to be on the company board as an unpaid director with legal powers similar to Boy's. He said it was good insurance to have. Just in case something ever happens to you, he told her. Of course, nothing will. It's just good business practice. Elaine Boy's had a strong incentive to follow Davis's instructions to the letter. His generosity far exceeded his original proposal. He not only paid her 50% more than she had made at Henry Spencer, but also arranged for her and Platt to buy a stylish two-bedroom apartment. Mr D, as Platt called him, had put up nearly $155,000 for the purchase. Davis and Platt were about the same age and had become friends. Davis rented premises for Platt and set him up in his own television and video repair business. He had even lent Platt the $35,000 he needed for start-up costs. As for the work boys had to do, it was hardly onerous, she explained to Clenahan. Davis would send her off to France, Italy or Switzerland to look at an antique sale or some properties, and while she was there, deposit cash in various accounts she set up in her own name as secretary of Cavendish Corp. It was all part of Davis's alimony avoidance strategy. Throughout 1991 and 92, everything went smoothly. Boys would return home after jetting across Europe, and a week later, a deposit slip would arrive by mail. She'd give it to Davis and he would have her transfer some of that money back into Cavendish's account. Then unexpectedly, late in 1992, Davis told boys that the loans he'd given her for the purchase of her apartment had to be called in. He cited cash flow problems. Surely there's some kind of arrangement we could make, Mr Davis, boys asked. Elaine, I don't see any way around it, Davis said. From Davis's tone, boys knew the conversation was over. The couple listed their apartment for sale. A few weeks later, Davis told Platt he could no longer pay the rent on his shop. Platt would have to go it alone. Everything seemed to change on Christmas Day, 1992. Davis invited boys and Platt to dinner at his house and presented them with a card in which he had written two air tickets to Canada, valid until the end of February. It's time you and Elaine seized the dream, Ron, he said. The couple thanked Davis profusely, although boys later persuaded him to give her a return ticket just in case. Davis had one last favour to ask in return. Since he would have to operate Cavendish Corp all by himself and would need to access his money, could Boys and Platt make rubber stamp copies of their signatures? His request didn't seem unreasonable. Both complied. On February 11, 1993, Boys signed over a power of attorney to Davis so that he could finish up the sale of the apartment. The document gave him the right, she recalled, to deposit money, to draw money, to sign my name, to receive mail on my behalf, generally to act in relation to my personal affairs in all respects as I myself do. 
Davis, ever the smooth talker, convinced Platt to also leave him copies of his birth certificate and driver's licence. On the evening of February 22, 1993, there was a farewell dinner for the couple before leaving for Canada. At one point in the evening, Ron Platt glanced down at his Rolex Oyster watch and announced, By this time tomorrow I'll be there. I'm going home. For boys, who had lived almost all of her life in gentle leafy Harrogate, Calgary in February was a harsh introduction to a new country. The city was not at all the wide-open, friendly frontier town of Platt's childhood memories. It seemed dark and cold now. Neither boys nor Platt had jobs lined up, so they were forced to look for cheap housing. It was a demoralising experience. They found a little basement apartment. At night, they lay awake and listened to the rumble of trucks on the Trans-Canada Highway just a few streets away. Davis called soon after their arrival to see how they were settling in. When Platt said things were not going too well, Davis urged, Give yourself time. It's a marvellous country, Canada. Platt began to brood and grow morose. Boys was worried. His dark moods were beginning to drag her down too. She was glad she had insisted on a return ticket to England. Her sister's wedding was scheduled for July and boys decided that if things did not improve by then, she would go back home for good. Come the summer, boys flew back to England for her sister's wedding. When she met Davis there, she announced that she wasn't going back to Canada. What seems to be the problem, he asked. Oh, Mr Davis, it was terrible. Ron can't find work. I couldn't even look for work because I couldn't get papers. Then Ron got depressed. I just couldn't cope. I can't go back. It would break me. But what about Ron, Davis inquired gently. He needs your support, Elaine. It sounds to me as though he's really trying. He just hasn't got a break yet. I think you should give him a second chance. But boys would not be moved. More than a year later, in March 1995, Davis received a letter. On opening it, he read the news. Ronald Joseph Platt was returning to England. He had been trying to live on odd jobs and was fed up. When Platt came back that spring, Davis found him a job just outside High Wycombe, so Platt would be near his mother. When he lost that job, he announced he wanted to move to Chelmsford to be closer to Davis. Six months later, he was dead. By the end of October 1996, Phil Sincock and his team had gathered a fair amount of incriminating material regarding David Davis. For example, they had various pieces of paper bearing Ron Platt's authentic signature, some of which didn't match the ones that had been handled by Davis. At the very least, Sincock thought, they had built up a case for fraud. Sincock felt that if he could get into that house on Little London Lane, he would very likely find a treasure trove of material. To get at it, he planned a raid on Davis's house for October 31. On the day before the raid, Clenahan obtained Davis's mobile phone records. They showed conclusively he had made numerous calls from Devon between July 7 and July 23, placing him squarely in the area where Platt's body was recovered and around the time he died. Police had what they believed was a murder suspect. The next step was to gather solid evidence that would stand up in court. Early on the morning of October 31, police cars moved into position around Little London Farm. At 10am, as police waited for a signal to charge the house, a taxi turned into the narrow confines of Little London Lane. David Davis was sitting in the front seat. Two police cars scrambled onto the road and quickly fell into line behind the taxi. Moments later, 
the flashing lights came on, then one of the police cars surged forward, motioning the taxi to pull over. As the driver rolled down his window, a policeman walked up alongside and shouted at Davis, Get out of the car! Davis slid out, hands up. Up against the car! Davis lay spread-eagled across the rear window as two officers frisked him and snapped on a pair of handcuffs. Then, into the group of policemen, walked a figure in plain clothes. Good morning, Mr Davis. Do you remember me? It was Sergeant Peter Redman. Yes, of course. What's this all about? I am arresting you on suspicion of the murder of Ronald Joseph Platt, Redman announced. Then he cautioned Davis about his rights. At the station, police found on their suspect the birth certificate of David W. Davis, a credit card in the name of R.J. Platt, health club and museum cards in David Davis's name, as well as business cards for a James J. Hilton, 146 Avenue William Favre, Geneva. Another identity. Might there be others, Sincock wondered? Who was this man they had taken into custody? When questioned, Davis refused to answer, saying only, I want to speak to a lawyer. Back at Little London Farm, Noelle Davis was also told she was under arrest. At the police station, her pockets and bags were emptied. Out came documents in Elaine Boys's name, a phone bill, checkbook, credit cards, and a National Health Service card. She also had a man's wallet, which contained Ronald Platt's birth certificate, driver's licence, bank cards, and various other papers. At first, Noelle stuck stubbornly to what was clearly a well-rehearsed script. She was from Long Island, and her husband, David, had been a friend of her father's. The police questioned her again and again. Finally, she told the truth. David Davis was, in fact, her father. After Platt and Boys had left for Canada, Noelle explained, she and her father assumed their identities. The Davises moved to Devon, where she gave birth to the first of two children. Because there was a baby, her father suggested they should present themselves as husband and wife. As for the real Ronald Platt, she said, she hadn't seen him since they ate Christmas dinner together in 1995. She had no idea that he had been in Devon during July. In fact, she had no idea that he was dead. Until now. Sincock had his people working around the clock. He had Davis's fingerprints sent to the US authorities via Interpol to see whether he was wanted there. His yacht, Lady Jane, was impounded for forensic testing. The police pored over his personal phone records. Everything gathered up during the investigation was transferred onto HOMES, Home Office Large Major Inquiry System, a computer database that would give each detective working on the case easy access to every bit of information available. As Phil Sincock had suspected, Little London Farm was laden with intriguing material. The man of the house was a hoarder, Seemingly every piece of paper that ever passed through David Davis's hands had been kept. Bank documents, legal documents, correspondence, even old train tickets. Yet nothing seemed to go back beyond six years. He seemed a man without a substantial history. He was not, however, without money. In boxes, briefcases and suitcases they found loads of cash. Thousands and thousands of British pounds and Swiss francs. Among the discoveries was a receipt dated July 8, 1996, for the purchase of a number of items at a sporting goods store called Sport Nautique. On it was a notation for a £10 anchor. The police didn't know what significance the receipt had, but they filed it with the mountains of other documents. 
By November 3, investigators had gathered enough evidence to warrant Davis's continued detention. Noel was released. On November 4, David Davis was formally charged with the murder of Ronald Joseph Platt. Meanwhile, the investigation, now involving up to 70 officers, continued. More clues took police to other locations. At a place called Solutions in Therapy, where Davis was a therapeutic counselling partner, police found five gold bars stashed away in an office. At Genstar Storage, they found more cash and gold and a global positioning system for navigation. At Chelmsford Storage, they turned up a set of suitcases. They were filled with Ronald Platt's personal belongings. Sincock sent his detectives to interview John Coppick. The fishermen went over again everything that happened on July 28, 1996. This time, he recalled that a colleague had come by, taken an anchor out of Coppick's nets, and walked away. The two police officers looked at each other. An anchor? Yes, he said, an anchor. After the police took the body away, Coppick explained, he and his sons were scrubbing the deck down. Just then, another fisherman, Derek Meredith, spotted an anchor tangled in Coppick's nets. It was small, about 75 centimetres long, with a rather sinister plough-shaped blade. Do you want it? Meredith asked. You're welcome to it, Coppick said. Detectives, intrigued by this new fact, tracked the fisherman down. I gave the anchor to my girlfriend, Meredith said. She and her mother, Patricia Johnson, put it in a rummage sale, I think. By mid-afternoon, the officers were knocking on Patricia Johnson's door. She confirmed she had put the anchor in a sale, but hadn't sold it. When she fetched it, it fitted the description of the one Davis had bought on July 8 at Sport Nautique. Elsewhere, forensic experts dusted Davis's yacht Lady Jane thoroughly for fingerprints and painstakingly searched for evidence. Incredibly, there was not a single print to be found. Eventually, it dawned on the police to check the Sport Nautique shopping bag that had been found aboard the boat. There, they found the fingerprints of Ronald Joseph Platt. Something else was found. Blood. There were three microscopic drops discovered on the rolled-up sails, and on cushions they found a small bit of hair and scalp, which tests showed as being similar to Platt's. Police examined the GPS unit taken from Genstar Storage. The manufacturer explained to them that the particular model stored the precise time and the last navigational reference point registered when it was shut off. When investigators downloaded the data inside the GPS, the last time and date recorded on it was 8.59pm, July 20, 1996, the approximate day of Platt's death. It placed Davis's boat six kilometres from where Coppock netted the body. There was still no evidence linking Davis himself to that place on that day, until Noelle Davis recalled that on July 20, her father announced he was heading out to sea alone. She and her children stayed behind at a holiday cottage they rented. The only other occasion Davis had gone sailing on his own, Noelle said, he had returned by 6pm. But on that particular day, he had not shown up by then. Noelle prepared dinner for herself and the children, then cuddled up in front of the television. By 8.59pm, Davis still wasn't back. At that precise time, four kilometres from the Devon coast, a hand switched off Lady Jane's GPS. It was exactly 15 minutes before sunset. In that light, from that distance, a sailor no longer needed the GPS. He could see his way to shore. It was well after dark when Davis came home. He looked, Noel told the police, scruffy and windswept. 
On November 25, as another autopsy of Platt's body was being prepared, something new appeared on the defrosting corpse. A bruise on the left leg, just above the knee. With the body stretched out on the examining table, a 45 kilogram zinc-plated anchor, similar to the one retrieved from Patricia Johnson's house, was brought in and laid out along Platt's left side. The two bruises, the new one and the one previously noted on his left hip, matched the contours of the anchor. Sincock sent Platt's belt and the seized anchor for forensic testing. Near the base of the anchor's shank were fibrous deposits, the kind found in leather. Investigators also noted that roughly 28 centimetres from the belt buckle were several marks on the leather that contained zinc, of the kind used to plate the anchor. This evidence supported the theory that someone inserted the anchor under Platt's belt to keep his body submerged. The circumstantial evidence against David Davis was mounting. But Sincock was still puzzled about something else. He was certain David Wallace Davis, as Davis insisted he was formally called, was not his real name. The police had run a search and discovered only one David Wallace Davis. He had been born in Britain and he had left as a child for parts unknown in 1949. So who was this man, who claimed to have been born in England, who said he was an English literature graduate from the University of Edinburgh, who professed to have been a banker in the United States, Switzerland and England before retiring to become a psychiatrist? None of those stories checked out. Sincock had assigned two detectives to review every scrap of paper retrieved from Little London Farm. He also directed his staff to see what countries were in the Holmes database of evidence. The police then prepared an information circular on Davis with his photo and fingerprints. They passed it to Interpol for distribution to Canada, Switzerland, Italy and France. On Friday, November 22, the National Criminal Intelligence Service office in London received a message from Interpol in Switzerland. The Swiss said David W. Davis looked very much like someone on Interpol's most wanted list, a Canadian-born swindler named Albert Johnson Walker. When the news reached Devon, there was a celebration. It looked like they had caught what might be a really big fish. Meanwhile, the murder investigation pressed on. As the police soon confirmed, Davis was indeed Walker, a Canadian financier from Paris, Ontario, who had fled his home country six years earlier, taking with him his 15-year-old daughter Sheena, a.k.a. Noelle Davis, and millions of dollars of his client's money. This was the money that Elaine Boys had unwittingly helped launder. In all, police estimated Walker had swindled more than $3 million from his clients. He had transferred close to $1.1 million to his various European accounts, from which he took out as much as $730,000 in gold, in British pounds and in French and Swiss francs. As for the real David W. Davis, police learned he was living in Canada and had once gone to Walker for help with a bank loan application. In the process, David talked him into handing over his birth certificate. On December 9, 1996, the suspect was remanded in custody under his real name, Albert Johnson Walker. By now, the evidence against him was overwhelming. There was an array of witnesses who said they had seen Walker with Platt in bars and hotels in Devon as late as July 10. These reports were in stark contrast to Sheena Walker's statement to police that her father had told her he had last seen Platt off to France in June. In light of all the other evidence, this was damning. It supported the theory that Walker was plotting something, the murder of Ronald Platt, 
Walker had needed a new identity. The David Davis cover he was using was limited. He had Davis's birth certificate and nothing else. Ronald Platt was his key to an entirely new life. Once Platt returned to England, that was all at risk. Walter knew his meeting with Platt had to remain a secret. Thus, Sheena's testimony could be the prosecution's most potent weapon. Alone in his prison cell, Albert Walker must have realised this danger. On Sunday, February 2, 1997, he telephoned his daughter, who had now returned to her mother's house in Canada, to ask her to change her testimony and say that she knew that Ron was in Devon with him. Not long afterward, Sheena made her own transatlantic call to the Devon and Cornwall police, informing them that her father had called her from prison and ordered her to change her testimony. It was an explosive accusation. Phil Sincock realised that if allowed into the court record, it could be a trial clincher. On March 24, at a pre-trial hearing to determine if there was enough evidence to warrant a trial, Walker strode into the courtroom with all the bearings of a trial lawyer. He wore a dark suit, blue shirt and tie. His natural grey hair was neatly trimmed. He looked personable and, except for the handcuffs, charming. The prosecution painted a picture of him as a calculating man who induced Platt to go to Canada, then stole his identity. When Platt could not make a go of it and returned to England, Walker, a wanted man, saw that his new cover might be exposed. So he decided to kill Platt. He bought an anchor, took Platt out to sea, knocked him unconscious, fixed the anchor to his body and heaved him overboard. But he made two key mistakes. He left the watch on Platt's wrist, which helped identify him, and he unknowingly registered the date, time and place of his movement on the GPS. Walker's defence team was arguing to dismiss the case. The defendant's lawyer, Gordon Pringle, said that the prosecution didn't have enough solid evidence. Without an eyewitness, he said, they could not prove that Platt had been murdered. His death could well have been a suicide. Furthermore, there was no proof that the anchor retrieved from Patricia Johnson's house was the same one that was pulled up in John Coppock's net. Nor was there any proof that the anchor was the one Walker had bought on July 8, 1996. The manufacturer had made thousands, and the retrieved anchor could have been any one of them. More important, Pringle said, the prosecution could not prove that Platt was on Walker's boat on the day that the alleged murder supposedly took place, or that Walker himself was there that day. Pringle argued that even the date and time of death could not be determined satisfactorily. Although the watch had stopped at 11.35, it was not clear whether it was a.m. or p.m. According to the government's own evidence, The last time anyone had seen Platt and Walker together was July 10. Death by drowning was estimated to have occurred approximately 10 days later. The judge, however, was not convinced by Pringle's arguments. It is my considered view, he said, that there is sufficient evidence to commit the case to the Crown Court. The trial was set for June 22, 1998. The evidence was simply overwhelming. Walker could not account for the whereabouts of the anchor that he had purchased on July 8. He could not explain why the GPS reading from the Lady Jane showed the date, time and place that it did, and how he had come to be using Platt's driver's licence, his birth certificate, his bank accounts. Finally, he had no plausible explanation for where he was on the night of July 20. Added to all this was Sheena Walker's painful testimony about the call from prison, which exposed her father for what he was a supreme manipulator 
capable of doing anything to save his skin, including telling his own daughter to twist the truth. On the morning of July 6, 1998, Justice Neil Butterfield began to instruct the jury. He reviewed the law and the evidence and in the end said, Please take with you your common sense and your knowledge of the world. The jury went out at 1pm. They returned at 3pm. Albert Walker was asked to stand up and face the jury. We find the defendant guilty, the jury foreman pronounced. Albert Walker blinked twice as though he wished to adjust his vision. He was told to remain standing. This was a callous, premeditated killing designed to eliminate a man you had used for your own selfish ends, said Justice Butterfield. The judge commended the detectives for painstaking police work, then looked to the prisoner's box and said, You may go down. Albert Johnson Walker was going down. Going down for life. After serving seven years of his life sentence for murder in a British prison, Walker was transferred to a Canadian prison. In 2007, he was further convicted of 20 Canadian fraud and theft charges relating to 23 Ontario victims, mainly elderly, and sentenced to a four-year term to run concurrent to his life sentence. It is estimated that he stole Canadian 3.2 million from his victims. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia.